0: You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Gracious Father God, we count it such a privilege to come before the throne of grace and to be able to do so in Jesus' name, because as we come in his name, we can come boldly not in the strength of our righteousness, but his. And so, Father, we praise you for this camp meeting, for these many, many opportunities to be fed, to be encouraged, to be instructed. And so, Father, as we come before you yet again in this hour, we lift up Brother Dave to you. Thank you so much for just the mind of study and the heart, the desire he has had for so many years to discover these things. And now, Father, we can learn, we can be fed, we can be encouraged. And so may we gather that we may also distribute to others and be a blessing to them. Send your spirit now to guide us, and we ask these mercies in Jesus' name. Amen. Yesterday we talked about the good Kellogg, right? Sadly, the story didn't stay that way. So uh, today we're going to deal with the bad Kellogg. This uh, this part of the story is is actually just incredibly sad. It was needless. It did not need to be that way. Same story with Adam and Eve, I guess. It did not need to be that way. But here we are now. It is also instructive. It's a part of our sacred history. that has been preserved for our benefit. So we... uh, Got to go through it. <clears throat> we closed off yesterday with the idea of the. Did I close? Yeah, I think I closed off. I don't know. Anyhow, we talked about it yesterday. The idea of the loud cry had been begun by 1892. Seven years later, Ellen White would write The third angel's message in the place of soaring into a loud cry is being smothered. This was written May 10, 1899. I don't think that is like the magic day that this happened. <laughs> it's just the day she happened to write that comment. I think she would have said the same thing for about, what was this, 99? She could have been saying the same thing roughly for about the last four years, I guess. What is interesting is the, the title of the manuscript in which this comment appears. The title is, The medical missionary work. So, for those who may have lingering doubts as to whether the loud cry has any relationship to the medical missionary work, I would submit that as exhibit 3817 or whatever number we're up to. Unfortunately, by that time when she wrote this statement, the one who was doing the worst smothering was John Harvey Kellogg. He was distorting the medical missionary work. Instead of using it to serve as the right hand of the gospel, he was largely jettisoning the message of Revelation, three angels' messages, and replacing it with a watered down, my term here, Christian humanitarianism. But the smothering had begun years before by others rather than the doctor. I have light from the Lord that Dr. Kellogg needs to be guarded. He is leaving a wrong impression on minds. He has made a mistake in supposing that the medical missionary work has an importance above every other work. Medical missionary work has its place, but it has been made disproportionately important. I think, let me just double-check myself. Yeah, this is the same manuscript. Okay. This is the same manuscript, 1899. But notice the next sentence. Had Dr. Kellogg's brethren stood with him in the first of his experience in connection with the health reform, the present condition of things would not now exist. Kellogg had encountered opposition and resistance. He'd become irritated and had begun to fight back. Pretty much a given. That's not going to be the way to get the Lord's work done. In 1900, just the next year, his opposition to Kellogg's work continued year after year. It gave the devil opportunity to tempt him to impatience and pride. The Lord sent warnings and reproofs through Ellen White, but the doctor listened less and less. She kept telling him, you need to work with the ministers. And the ministers weren't making it easy, and he kept saying, forget them. The Lord has sent you, Dr. Kellogg, warnings, but you have not heeded them. The deceptive power of the enemy has led you to leave God's banner trailing in the dust. Dr. Kellogg has committed himself as working undenominationally in a work which has taken the money from a people who are decidedly a denominational people. This is an interesting thing. Why did he go off on this undenominational thing? It's because he was hoping to have his medical school accredited by the American Association of Medical Colleges. That's the educational branch of the American Medical Association. And they were refusing to accredit a denominationally affiliated institution. So in seeking their approval, uh, he found it, well, let's put it simple. He thought their approval was better than the approval of the ministers. Ministers weren't approving anyhow, so... Why try to work with them? Work with these other guys. Uh, He spent more and more time, more money on helping people with their health, turning it into a medical program and less a medical missionary program. This made him feel good. That's a key thing to remember right here. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Even if you're giving for mixed-up reasons, it makes you feel good. Kellogg was a generous guy. He put 50 students through medical school. He adopted, you know, 18 kids. He raised 42. He he paid for this. He paid for that. He he loved being generous. It made him feel good. It should. It does. It's more blessed to give than to receive. But he was doing it for mixed motives at best sometimes. The work has been hindered. The cause of God should have a different showing, far different. And who is to blame for this hindrance? You give heed to men not of our faith. You delight to show what you have done, and by a free use of money that was not yours to handle, in a way that God has not appointed. Who's the uh, give heed to men not of our faith? Who would that be? Well, quite a slate of them, actually. I think the predominant one would be the AAMC. a free use of money that was not yours to handle. Well, that required some level of mm, spiritual discernment to recognize that it wasn't his to handle because people were giving it to him because he just happened to be a dynamite fundraiser. <laughs> He'd go to an Adventist camp meeting. <laughs> he could spin a tale about the medical mission work. Oh, yeah! People love emotional stuff. And they'd give him money. And over in Australia... Ellen White and the work over there was barely getting by on peanuts facing a situation. 1893 onwards, they had a bank crash over there, 1893. And in 1894, Ellen White wrote of, we hear of people starving to death in the cities, as in dead, dead, death, right? The work was being hampered around the world by Kellogg's free use of money in a way that God has not appointed. Well, in 1902, some of that changed. Sanitarium burned down, February 18, 1902. Uh, one little quick story I can't help but uh, indulge myself with. <clears throat> it was m- pretty much miraculous. They got everybody out of the, out of the sanitarium. Um, They didn't have air conditioning in those days, so they had ventilation shafts, straight vertical shafts from floor to basement lined with wood. Apparently, the fire started in the basement and went right up the shaft, so the fire spread on all, was it seven floors or whatever it was, all at the same time. The nurses did valiant effort and service, and they got every patient out. There was only one who died. A Mr. Case was his name, an older gentleman. He had been safely evacuated across the street, standing in the snowbank in McCamley Park with everyone else. And all of a sudden, he said, <gasps> My mattress! And he went running back into the sanitarium, from whence he never re emerged. I don't know, maybe it was one of those sleep number jobs or something a you know, really nice mattress. Yeah. No. In fact, like many people in the day, he had his life savings in the mattress. It was his competency, right? It was enough money to keep him for the rest of his days. And the good news is that it was sufficient. Anyhow, uh, despite having been given the golden opportunity to... uh, Actually, the best thing would have been to divide and spread out the sanitarium instead of having a massive uh, facility in one location. Ellen White had already intimated that it would be better to have 10 smaller ones scattered around the country. Kellogg had that opportunity. He floated it. He flirted with it. He used it as a way to scare the uh, civic authorities in Battle Creek into giving him a great tax uh, deferral type of a thing. because they didn't want to see it go away, right? I mean, that was a pretty big uh, business draw, right? Um, So eventually he got that, and of course he rebuilt the sanitarium, um, gave the general conference a set of plans, and then promptly enlarged and expanded and uh, super uh, made much more elegant the plans that he gave, but he came up with a plan, because there was going to be, they needed a lot of money, and the general conference was kind of strapped right then, because they'd been working without a lot of money for some years, because Kellogg was spending all the money, and so he said, uh, he couldn't get any money from the general conference, but he came up with a great plan, he says, you know, I just recently wrote a book, how about I donate the book, you get the review to print it kind of for free, we'll get the church members to sell it without taking their canvassers cut, and all the profits will go to help rebuild the sanitarium. General Conference folks thought that was a wonderful idea, and so, um, yeah, he offered the book. You may have heard of it. Uh, It's called The Living Temple. Um, If Kellogg had been honest with the details of his building plans and honest with the details of the book, things might have turned out differently. But instead, he misled the General Conference on the size and expense of the sanitarium, and, of course, Living Temple had elements of pantheism in the book. If anyone's not familiar with it, pantheism is simply the idea that God is everything and is in everything. Um, Pantheism has always been, I mean, it's it's essentially the integral element of Hinduism. Uh, It has been in a lot of uh, tribal-type religions, that kind of thing. In recent decades, it's been modernized, adapted somewhat somewhat sloppily, (laughs) into many of the new poorly defined uh, kind of spiritual concepts that have been replacing traditional religions. If you just went out on the street, you would find a lot of people believe in some elements of pantheism probably without even knowing what they're believing. Much of its popularity is due to the idea that under that system of belief, everyone is God. God is everything. God is everywhere. God is, you know, everything is God. That means I'm God. You're God. That's nice. You know, wow. We can worship each other. That's actually been said uh, by um, someone who claimed to be a Christian. Um, But probably the the primary incentive to this sort of thing is the uh, the almost subconscious rationale that clearly if I'm God, why do I need to listen to anyone else? I'm the final authority. I can do whatever I want. In the face of all this, one of the most remarkable aspects of the whole story was Ellen White's commitment to trying to save Kellogg. At the General Conference Session of 1903, more than a year after he'd written this pantheistic book, she made her strongest public effort to defend him and the work God had given him to do, not necessarily the work that he was doing, but the work that God had given him to do. Her goal was to restore the unity of the evangelistic work and the medical missionary work. Unfortunately, the effort failed. But this is not a public meeting, at a general conference session. Listen to this. God does not endorse the efforts put forth by different ones to make the work of Dr. Kellogg as hard as possible in order to build themselves up. God gave the light on health reform, and those who rejected it rejected God. One another who knew better said that it all came from Dr. Kellogg, and they made war upon him. This had a bad influence on the doctor. Oh, no, that's a surprise. <laughs> you start shooting at me with a machine gun. It might have a bad influence on me. Yeah. Uh, they made war upon him. This had a bad influence on the doctor. He put on the code of irritation and retaliation. God did not want him to stand in a position of warfare, and he does not want you to stand there. You know what? I don't care what crises the church happens to face next month. The devil's primary goal is, is going to split the brother. You know, I mean, I can think of a, a few issues which may have come close to doing that in recent months. I thought of something yesterday morning as I was lying, semi-conscious, trying to get myself going for the day. Remember when Jacob was coming back to meet Esau and Esau was coming with 400 men? Jacob did a really intelligent thing. He split his his group into, into two companies. Now, I'm pretty sure that everybody in both companies wanted to come out alive. I like to believe that everybody in both companies hoped that everyone in the other company would also come out alive. I'd like to recommend that as a great way to look at some current crises. (laughs) I'll leave that there and go on. Well, coming out of this, of course, we have the Alpha and Omega of apostasy. The Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last one. This imagery was used by the Lord to give us a warning of an apostasy, similar to that of the early 1900s that we may expect in the last days, the Omega apostasy, right? Ellen White used the idea of the Alpha and Omega in her descriptions and comments about Kellogg's book a few times. Here's a couple of them. Living Temple contains the alpha of these theories. I knew that the omega would follow in a little while, and I trembled for our people. That's where I got the title for my second-to-last book, Tremble. In the book Living Temple, there is presented the alpha of deadly heresies. The omega will follow and will be received by those who are not willing to heed the warning God has given. Aha! I like statements that imply Something within my power to do. You know, I, I, I like the concept of being a free moral agent. And right here, there's a piece of advice that I would recommend to you. Heed the warning God has given. <laughs> what was that warning? She doesn't say. <laughs> she doesn't say exactly. I'm going to give you my best guess. The best guess I know, don't read the book. Ha, <laughs> That's what she was saying at the time. Don't read the book. Now, this being 2021, I could extend that a little bit. Don't watch the TV program. Don't watch the movie. Don't watch the YouTube presentation. Don't read the stupid book. Don't... Do you have any idea how much... Pseudo, well, I don't know what to call it, but just mixed up nonsensical uh, supernatural garbage is flooding the media of the day. I mean, it's like you think somebody's setting something up for, you know, maybe just maybe. So here's a hot tip don't read the book. As I am shown these special things of Satan's science and how he deceived the holy angels, I am afraid of the men who have entered into the study of the science that Satan carried into the warfare of heaven. Oh, how I have longed to be where I should not be compelled to see the same science practiced on this earth by medical practitioners. Do you see why we started with Lucifer? Be cautious in regard to what you read and how you hear take not a particle of interest in spiritualistic theories. Satan is waiting to steal a march upon everyone who allows himself to be deceived by his hypnotism. He begins to exert his power over them just as soon as they begin to investigate his theories. It doesn't say practice. It says investigate. Now, when I wrote Tremble, I faced a real challenge. Do I write about Kellogg's pantheism? Do I expose myself to Kellogg's pantheism? There's something about don't read the book, right? Remember that? So remember a couple slides back, we have a picture of Living Temple. In order to get that, I downloaded the book. I didn't read it. I don't want to read it. Why read the book? (laughs) Don't read the book. What was I supposed to do when I'm writing a book about the whole experience, though? Hmm. Well, I'll tell you what I did. I'm not positive. It was the absolute perfect thing. I'll just be honest with you what I did. I didn't investigate the theories. I said, what did Ellen White write about? She wrote about his practices. So I said, I'm going to confine myself to his practices. But then I had another question. All of a sudden, I found out that Kellogg's correspondence is all available at the University of uh, Michigan or Michigan State University, one or the other, I forget which where it is. Um, It's the one in Lansing. That's MSU, right? Okay. Yeah, they have it all on file. And the last time I was out of Canada, I was speaking in Lansing. (laughs) So yeah, I went down there and paid my 25 bucks and got got a, a USB stick with all Kellogg's correspondence on it. Now, am I going to read this? Same guy wrote the book. Am I going to read this? Fascinating question. Here's what I eventually did. I said, I will read to see what he was doing, his practices, his his actions. But before I read Kellogg, I will read everything that Ellen White ever wrote about him between 1902 no, excuse me 1892 and 1907. 15 years. I't I actually, when I made that decision, I didn't even have the whole slate of Kellogg stuff, but what little I had available. I knew. this guy is so persuasive. So I said, I'm going to read everything she ever wrote to or about Kellogg from, 19, or from 1892 to 1907. I'm not sure I would have said that if I realized it was going to take me six months to get through that. She wrote an awful lot about this guy. <laughs> okay. It took me six solid months, sometimes reading four hours a day, to get through that. So anyhow, once I had her perspective pretty clearly in mind, I felt a little more comfortable reading his perspective. But I'll tell you, the guy is persuasive. He almost took George Butler and Stephen Haskell out of the church. That's how close, that's how persuasive he is. And here's the, here's the thing. The one thing that saved those two leading, founding, pioneer brethren, the one thing that saved them was that Kellogg could not do what he wanted to do without going up against the inspiration of Ellen White. And they said, I have faith in Ellen White. I think they were like some angels that are still in heaven, but maybe only barely. (laughs) Faith is the big deal, guys, just telling you. Okay, i got to hurry on. Suffer not yourselves to open the lids of... Uh, no, there's no one. Yeah. Suffer not yourselves to open the lids of a book that is questionable. There is a hellish fascination in the literature of Satan. It is the powerful battery by which he tears down a simple religious faith. Never feel that you are strong enough to read infidel books or watch stupid TV programs or G-D-D-D-D-D. For they contain a poison like that of asps. They can do you no good and will assuredly do you harm. In reading them, you are inhaling the miasmas of hell. I'm going to say that's probably not a... Strong recommendation. (laughs) Let's go on. This whole matter has been presented to me. You, Dr. Kellogg, have worked as Lucifer worked in the heavenly courts. See why we started with Lucifer. To persuade his associates to unite with him. The enemy has used his arts upon your mind, your boasted study of science and your assertion that you had obtained something excellent, have deceived the men connected with you, and they have refused to listen to the warnings sent to keep them from listening to your false representations. Remember this uh, statement? God calls for far more tact, more wise generalship than has yet been given him by his human agents. There is need of sharp, sanctified thinking and keen work to counteract the ingenious plans of Satan. In presentations like this, I often try to go into some level of detail as to the the methods, right, The, the tactics used by Kellogg. It is instructive. What, 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 what were his actions? Okay, that's what my book's all about, right? I'm not going to do that this time. I'm not sure why. Maybe I just needed something different. I want to illustrate this idea right here. This sharp, sanctified thinking and keen work to counteract the ingenious plans of Satan. In order to illustrate that, I want to basically just tell you the story one key part of the story, and and go into much more detail than I would normally in, you know, trying to deal with a wider swath of information. Um, I spent some time last night and this morning trying to put that all together from scratch, from other presentations I've done in the past. i oh, I could take this, I could do, 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 you know. And finally I said, Dave, you wrote it out once. Just use the book. So my apologies. I seldom like to just read to the congregation. But I think this part of the story is maybe interesting enough that you'll, you know, you'll let me get away with it. It'll be on the screen. You can you know, either sit back and relax or follow along. But uh, here we go. This is Uncle Dave's story hour. In late August 1903, the doctor dictated a letter to his longtime friend and co worker, Dr. David Paulson. Kellogg was clearly feeling that his decision to reopen Battle Creek College, sorry about that, left the word out, against Ellen White's counsel was going to precipitate a rupture between the medical work and the general conference. This letter has a distinctly militant tone, making it a fascinating read. Unfortunately, it runs to nine typewritten pages. All we can include here are the barest of selections. Kellogg was a prolific letter writer. I don't know what was with those guys back in the day. I mean, it's like 16, 17, 20-page letters was, was a norm. Must have been such a relief when the telephone came along. It was right at this time, too. You'll see it in this next slide. Kellogg here, writing to Paulson. We are getting into strange times. It looks as though a line of battle was being formed. The conference men are determined to run the sanitarium and the medical missionary work. The devil will tempt some of our doctors, who are ambitious for place and professional opportunities, to join hands with these conference men. I understood you over the telephone that you had crossed the Rubicon. I think Jones and Wagner have done the same, and McGann and Sutherland. We have a truth which appeals to men and women more powerfully than any prophetic argument or any of the old doctrines which have so long been taught. These newer truths which have come to us have more converting power in them than all the doctrines which have been preached during the last 40 years put together. Okay, stop just a moment, this is 1903, subtract 40 years, that's 1863, that's the year that the church was organized. So he just wiped out the entire history of Adventist formal evangelism, okay. The Living Temple Gospel renders useless a whole lot of their old flint muskets and their stale ammunition. Multitudes of heathen believe in an ever-present God, in God working in the living things about us. The eyes of Christians have been blinded to this fact by false philosophy. And this is far more pernicious and injurious as to consequences than Sunday keeping or the belief in the immortality of the soul. I hope you, Dr. Paulson, will have a good time in Illinois and in Kansas. The principal thing is to get acquainted with a lot of young people. Do not forget to get get the names of all the young people. A good way to get hold of the names is to tell them that we have some interesting literature we want to send them. Try and get some plan organized for selling the living temple. Yeah, they had mail lists back then. Fascinating idea. The combined protests of Ellen White and denominational leaders managed to temporarily block Kellogg's plan to reopen reopen the college. But by 1905, Kellogg was desperate for student workers in the sanitarium. That's what kept his operation going, was these underpaid student workers, right? He began advertising the establishment of the Battle Creek Schools, a grandiose university to operate in conjunction with the sanitarium. The sales pitch indicated the students could choose from professional, scientific, literary, biblical, technical, industrial, 40 courses leading to diplomas and degrees. And, of course, they could pay their expenses by working in the sand. In many ways, it was a great opportunity for a young man or woman, provided one was willing to ignore Ellen White's counsel to avoid the faith-destroying influences that then so prevalent at the sanitarium and Battle Creek in general. It was a straightforward contest. Kellogg was trying to get Adventist youth to Battle Creek, and Ellen White was warning them to stay away. And That's why Kellogg needed to discredit Ellen White. But how do you discredit the spirit of prophecy? Well, you attack the source of its credibility. Uh, that would be God. And the whole concept of inspiration. That's what gave Ellen White credibility and influence with church members. Cut inspiration out of the picture, and she's just another old woman as far as authority goes. No, wait, that's too much. No one with any personal experience would go for that. Kellogg needed to dial it back a bit. But how? <clears throat> Simple. Simple. Just say that sometimes her ideas came from God and sometimes she was influenced by what someone else wrote or said to her. That's all it takes. Plant that idea in people's thinking and they'll surely find some part of the spirit of prophecy to apply it to. You know, if you read the spirit of prophecy, you're going to find something you don't like. (laughs) You're going to find that it corrects you on some point and you would rather not make that change. And if you have floating around in your philosophical armament of, you know, processing, the idea that some parts of the spirit of prophecy aren't quite up to snuff, well, this has got to be the one. Of course, Dr. Kellogg wanted that exception to apply to the whole thing about Battle Creek and the sanitarium being off track. With that out of the way, the cheap labor tap would flow again. Writing to W.C. White shortly after getting home from a trip to Europe, General Conference President A.G. Daniels told how one of the leading brethren in Ireland had heard from Dr. Kellogg that, quote, testimonies were sent out with Sister White's stamp upon them, which she herself never saw. And that the doctor had once forced a confession from Woolley that he and her assistants had made up a testimony and signed her name and sent it to Dr. Kellogg. Neither of those were true, but that's what the guy in Ireland had heard. Daniels continued, I find that the air is full of doubts and questions, questionings regarding the spirit of prophecy. I believe that it is our duty to rise up and meet this evil thing and give our people that which will undeceive them and give them assurance. I am persuaded that the war that is to be waged against the spirit of prophecy is to come from within and not outside of our own denomination. Now, I know where this evil work originates, In every instance, almost, I've been able to trace it to one place. Letters and statements are continually going out, calculated to arouse suspicion and bring unbelief and rejection. The work is going on all the time and is reaching out to the ends of the earth. Daniels wanted something done. He'd wanted it for months. But Ellen White urged discretion in dealing with the doctor. She did more than that, of course, and she wasn't blind to what was going on. In fact, she was keeping a close eye on many details of the devil's effort. When the Battle Creek Schools issue started heating up again, Elder Daniels was getting desperate. This is about the fall of 1905 now. They kind of held it off for two years by, you know, Ellen White and General Conference resistance. But the fall, the late summer, early fall of 1905, Kellogg's getting desperate. He's got to do something. Daniels writes, I have good reason to believe these Battle Creek schools are designed for a great dragnet with which to catch our young people. The thing is already beginning to work. Unless something decided is done to counteract the movement, we shall lose hundreds of the very flower of our young people. I believe that our whole denomination must be more clearly and fully informed of this dangerous movement at Battle Creek. The Lord has given you, Ellen White, volumes of instruction. What has come to me has informed and aroused me regarding the crisis we are in. I feel sure that if our brethren and sisters knew the facts, one half as fully as they have been revealed to you, they would stand as one man against this evil thing. But as it is at present, thousands know but little about it. We say nothing or speak with whispered breath. And all the while, the enemy is at work gaining sympathy, influence, and souls. Do you see any parallel here? Remember the statement about the angels in heaven? The rebellion was allowed to progress before anything was done. I confess to you that this is the greatest sorrow of my life. I have no desire to make war on Dr. Kellogg. I do not care what fame he gets, nor how many worldly people go to Battle Creek. But it breaks my heart to see our young people go there, to be poisoned against the ministry that brought their parents into the truth and against the message for which their parents have stood and sacrificed so loyally. No one needs say that they are not thus influenced. I know better. When a father tells me that his son became an infidel at Battle Creek, and declines to recommend him to his conference for an honorable medical position, I know there is more than imagination on my part regarding the character of the influence there. I seriously fear that for some months we have been losing ground in this controversy. While we have been silent, they have been aggressive. Their efforts have not been open and frank. They are moving undercover and are gaining ground. They press their warfare untiringly in all directions. Everywhere we go, we run into it. Now and then, someone sends us letters or copies of letters sent out from Battle Creek, which are absolutely untrue and altogether deceiving and undermining in their character. And from all sources, we learn of our young people going there. These things force the issue upon us. The spirit of prophecy has warned our young people not to go to Battle Creek. Dr. Kellogg has determined that they shall go there, and they are going. For one, I feel that this dominant denomination ought to rise up in the name of God and stop this thing. (laughs) Elder Daniel's letters during this time period are great reading. (laughs) Incidentally, you can get that from the White Estate website, right? Just look for the correspondence section. You can download all this stuff. It's like a piece of cake being a historian these days. To Elder Daniel's letter, Ellen White responded, I have light from the Lord that at this time we must act with great caution. For the enemy is watching our every movement. At times, I have been ready to take steps that would be called aggressive. I would read over the letters containing warning and caution that I have had from the Lord for several in Battle Creek. At times, I have felt that I must print all the warnings given me for Dr. Kellogg. If I were going to guess off the top of my head, I'd say I read that, that idea in Ellen White's letters. I'm going to have to print everything I've ever told him. I, I'd say at least 25 times. 25 different times over a period of maybe five years, something like that. She says, That's, I'm going to have to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to destroy his reputation, but I'm going to have to do that. It was tearing her heart out. She goes on. But I have not yet done this because I have been impressed to wait. If I should make a strong move in this direction, the battle would be on. Those who are opposing the light God has given would feel that they had been attacked and would claim that they were compelled to make moves that otherwise they would not have made. And it would take much of our time to meet the issue. Let us hold on patiently for a little while. And let the elements break forth that are struggling into life. Let not too many articles be published in the Review and Herald that are of a character to stir up strife. Oh man! <laughs> can you imagine being the editor of the and Herald? Exactly how many anti-Kellogg articles can I now publish? <laughs> you know, is one too many? You know, let not too many articles. Oh, these guys were—they were going through the mill. Hold it! What kind of a war is this? The enemy is killing us. Our church members don't even know what's going on, and we're supposed to wait? Welcome to the polemos. (laughs) That's earlier in the book. Polemos. Cameron can set me straight on this. How How do you say that, by the way? I've been bluffing. Okay. Polemos. That's the word for war in Revelation 12. And it's not a war of tanks and missiles. It's where we get our English word polemic which is a virulent attack on someone else's position or beliefs. Welcome to the Polemos. That's, there's a reason for reading Patriarchs and Prophets and Great Conferences. Ellen White had told the General Conference guys, she wrote to Daniels and Prescott and I.H. Evans and all the other people there, she said, get Patriarchs and Prophets, get Great Conferences, read the sections about the rebellion of Lucifer in heaven. That's what's going on now. Read that stuff. There was a good reason for that. And there was a good reason for waiting. Waiting. Oh, Daniels didn't want to hear about waiting. Ellen White wrote, Some who have been deceived by men in responsible places will repent and be converted. And in all our dealings with them, we must remember that none of those who are in the depths of Satan's snare know that they are there. Wow. It's easier for me to grab a sword and, you know, start spilling blood. (laughs) Just wow. Later, she would describe, describe that time period. Long ago, some thought that the time had come when we must take decided action to break the spell. But in the visions of the night, I was in an assembly of the physicians, and I saw the work that was being planned. Then I said to my son, I must get everything in readiness, for soon we shall see the necessity of having the armor on, ready for action. In that meeting, many things were said, which I can and must meet. I must now work. And we did work. We had to move, and yet we had to wait until those in error thought they could carry things against the ministers and churches. I was shown their course of action and had everything in readiness for such a movement and labored to defeat their deep, Laid plot, wise generalship, sharp, keen thinking. This is tactical, you know? This is, this is the very definition of a tactical deployment of one's available forces. She says, not now, it's not the right time. It's not the right circumstances. Wait. And yes, young people were going to Battle Creek while they waited. You know, I suspect that one of the harder parts of being a general is ordering your men into battle knowing that they will probably die. War as famously uttered by some general, I forget who he was, war is hell. Or at least it came from there. (laughs) Deep-laid plot. This is not Kellogg making a mistake. This is a deliberate, intentional, antagonistic effort. I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to stir up any fights here. Today we'd call it A conspiracy. (laughs) This one is, whether any of the rest are, this one was. Going on. Events of late December 1905 constitute the tipping point of Kellogg's opposition to Ellen White, the General Conference, and God's work in general. It was then that the credibility of the rebellion was, if not completely, then at least irrecoverably broken. Oddly, this story is almost unknown. It certainly deserves as much interest as the iceberg vision of 1903, and arguably more, I would say, unknown to the point that I had never heard this story. I don't think it was ever printed until I put it in my book. I got it straight out of of Elder Daniel's letters. Why did this story not get brought out? I mean, there was always a puzzle in my mind, because if you had asked me prior to doing this particular research, if you had said, when did, uh, you know, Kellogg get defeated, I would have told you the iceberg story, right? Everybody knows the iceberg story, right? I mean, probably, right? Okay. Uh, the ship hits the iceberg, the middle, okay, that whole thing. That was, that was like the fall of 1903, and I always wondered, so if, you know, if he was defeated in 1903, how come he's still causing trouble in 04 and 05? And, you know, what's going on here? And that was a puzzle in my mind. And I did not know of this part of the story. And this is the real, the real story. I mean, this is, this is the real occasion. So W.C. White sets the scene for us in a letter to Elder Irwin. He said, Elder Daniels, uh, I should... I have to set the scene just a little bit more. Um, Ellen White was in Elmshaven. Willie White was out traveling. Uh, Daniels was traveling. And uh, Irwin, I think, was also traveling at, all at the same time, right? Okay. So Willie writes a letter to Elder Irwin and says Elder Daniels tells me of a telegram from Mother asking him to wait in Battle Creek until manuscripts arrive, which were mailed December 21st. So here's a little of the back story. Is that Ellen White had written a number of manuscripts previously. And the Lord had said, don't mail those. Just hang on to them. On the 21st of December, she was wakened early in the morning with the instruction, get those manuscripts together and get them in the mail to Daniels at Battle Creek, get a telegram off to him to get him to Battle Creek to wait for them. He was in Chicago, so it wasn't too far, but, you know, still. Telegram was sent. They worked all day typing out copies of these, you know, manuscripts with their uh, onion skin paper and their, uh, you know, uh, carbon paper type of thing, best they could do. pre Xerox. Oh, man, how did they live? Anyhow. Uh, <laughs> so they got this in the mail on December twenty one. We switch now to Daniel's account of the whole thing, the events that followed. Yesterday morning, that would be December twenty-six. yesterday morning I came early to the Dime Tabernacle office to see if the communication had arrived from Sister White. I was disappointed that it had not come. A few minutes later, one of the doctors, not Kellogg, but one of the doctors from the sanitarium called to see me. He said that he was in great perplexity of mind. He had been brought up from a child to look upon every message from Sister White as having emanated from the Lord. He said that now he was so bewildered and confused by all he had heard, he hardly knew what to think nor what course to pursue. He stated that the night before, he, with a large company of men, including Judge Jesse Arthur, Professor Nicola, Dr. C.C. Nicola, Dr. Rand, Highland Butler, and many of the heads of the departments in the sanitarium had sat from 5 o'clock until 11 o'clock listening to Dr. Kellogg outline the recent controversy from his standpoint. He said that the doctor assured them that he believed in the spirit of prophecy. And he believed that Sister White is a good woman and that she had been inspired by the Lord. but he went on then to establish by many infallible proofs the fact that all of the communications which were sent out could not be relied upon as coming from the Lord. That's an old construction. uh, That always makes it sound like he's saying all of the communications. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, we would today cast that a little bit differently. We would say not all of the the communications. So he's not saying everything Ellen White ever said is is junk. He's just saying, yeah, some of it's not some of it's not from God. Okay. <clears throat> now, said this doctor, I want if possible that you shall make it plain to me what messages we are to understand are from the Lord and which ones emanate from men who are influencing Sister White. In other words, tell me how to know the difference between the testimonies that the Lord sends and those which are prompted by reports sent to Sister White. While we were talking, Someone came to the door and handed me the large envelope containing the testimonies I'd been looking for. This doctor saw me receive this bundle of testimonies. When he asked me to tell him how to decide which testimonies were genuine and which were spurious, I told him that I was unable to give him any light whatever on this point. I told him that to me they were all genuine, and I knew of no means by which he could distinguish the true from the false, that to me they were either all from the Lord or from the devil. Then I called his attention to this envelope containing the testimonies that had been handed in while we were talking. Now, said I, doctor, we will open this envelope, and you should be the first one to look upon these testimonies. Take them, look them over, and tell me whether they are genuine or spurious, whether they were given to her by the Lord or by some man. He took them, looked at the titles, the dates, the signatures. Handing them over, he said to me, well, I cannot tell you whether these are from the Lord or from man whether they are reliable or unreliable. It looks to me, said he, that it is a question of faith on my part as to whether Sister White is a servant of God or a wicked pretender. Well, said I, you are just as able to tell me who inspired these communications as I am to tell you. You have seen them first. You know just as much about them as I do. I cannot give you the slightest information that you do not possess. Now, said I, the only ground for me to occupy is absolute confidence that God is revealing to his servant that which the church needs to understand, and that every single communication which he sends out emanates from God and not from man. This doctor was not Dr. Kellogg, of course, but one of the doctors from the sanitarium. With a positive result like that, to start off the campaign, Elder Daniels prepared for the main battle, the reading of the testimonies in the Dime Tabernacle that evening. His letter continues. The people had heard that the communications were coming from Sister White and were all anxious to hear them. At 7.30, the tabernacle was filled. The auditorium, the vestries, the gallery, that'd be over 5,000 people. I did not see Dr. Kellogg, but I saw WK, Dr. Paulson, Elder Jones, Elder Taylor, and other leading men. Those are all Kellogg loyalists right there. We first had a very earnest season of prayer, Then I read the telegram that I had received from Sister White and proceeded to read the communications. I read both of them without comment. The people listened with breathless interest, and the power and authority of the living God accompanied the message. There was a deep hush and a solemn silence that I have seldom seldom witnessed in a congregation. It seemed to me, as I read, that I never felt the burning power of words reaching my own soul as these When I had finished, it was nine o'clock. But I told the congregation that it was my impression that we ought to pray, that we ought to resort to earnest prayer, and invited those who felt the same way to retire to the North Vestry, where we could engage in prayer together. Such a great crowd remained that we changed from the vestry to the auditorium. I think the auditorium must have been two-thirds full. We did not spend time to talk, but got down on our knees at once, and united in earnest prayer to God. We prayed that our eyes might be opened, that we might see things as God sees them. We prayed that Dr. Kellogg and his associates and all the helpers might be led to receive and obey the solemn messages that had come to us. The Spirit of the Lord was present. At 10 o'clock, we closed the service and quietly retired. I should have said that when the general meeting closed, three men who had been in the meeting with Kellogg the night before, from 5 to 11 o'clock, came forward and told me that the meeting held the previous night had been clearly described by the testimony I had read, entitled, The Result of a Failure to Heed God's Warnings. And they said if there had been a doubt in their minds regarding the source of the testimonies, it would have been swept away by their own statements in the testimonies. In other words, They heard from Ellen White what they had said the night before. I have talked with a number who were in the meeting, and I can but believe that Sister White was stirred up by the Lord on the very day that she caused this message to be written and posted to us for the purpose of getting it into our hands the very day that it arrived. It is profoundly impressive to look at the facts. The message was written in her diary January 1, 1904. This is December 1905. Almost two years ago. Thursday morning, December 21, 1905, she was roused to have that message copied from her diary and posted to Battle Creek. The work was done and the telegram sent at 11 o'clock that night. Monday night, December 25, a private meeting was held with the leading men in a room of the college. This meeting was of such a nature that a number have told me that if they had not been well-grounded, they would not have They would have been turned away entirely from the testimonies. One said that he would be driven into infidelity if he believed the things the doctor related to them. Early the next morning after this meeting was held, the message was in our hands, and in 24 hours after these misleading, bewildering, confusing representations were made to a few men privately, they were openly exposed to nearly 2,000 people. How do you get 2,000? I know that uh, I'm going to have to double-check myself. I thought that the time tabernacle could hold five thousand. He said it was full. Uh, anyhow, whatever, minor detail, just the kind of thing catches my attention. Going on. Men may say what they like. I believe we have a living God, the author of such coincidences as these. I am deeply impressed. The authority and power of the infinite One came to us last night. Victory has been given to this cause and it will be worked out now in the Lord's own way. I believe that the fear and restraint that has been upon many has been broken, and that now they will stand calmly and fearlessly without wavering in defense of the truth of God. I wish you were here to see and feel what we are seeing and experiencing. I am amply repaid for all the anxiety and perplexity through which I have passed during these fierce struggles. I know that God is rewarding us for our pledge of unswerving loyalty to the spirit of prophecy as well as the rest of this message. I shall now work harder than ever to enlighten minds regarding the false reports that have been poured into their ears for the purpose of destroying the authority of the testimonies of God's spirit. Has anyone else ever heard that story before? Is there a hand on that? Where did you hear it? Do you remember? No, not there. Yeah, I'll have to go go double check it, but I'm sure I looked. (laughs) Anyhow, okay, I would love to see it there, but I'm pretty sure I didn't. I had never heard that story. Anyhow, it's an impressive one. It's a pretty impressive story. If you have any doubts about the spirit of prophecy, read a few stories like that. Don't read the other book. (laughs) Makes a big difference what you read, makes a big difference what you watch, what you listen to. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. (laughs) They wrote some good songs back in the day, didn't they? Okay, well, finishing up. Man, I'm early. This is unusual. So this is what we've, what we've been doing, and this is why we've been doing it. We started off looking at Lucifer's rebellion because it set the pattern for everything that he does thereafter. We'll see that more clearly tomorrow. We then went to Christ's response because it set the pattern for every successful effort thereafter. We looked at the good Kellogg when he was, in fact, combining the union of Christlike work for the body and Christlike work for the soul, which is the method that Jesus used. And it resulted in the beginning of the loud cry. Today, we looked at the bad Kellogg in the beginning of the Alpha of Apostasy, which incorporated every single tactic that Lucifer used in heaven. I've got a couple minutes. There's one little detail that I'll, I'll, I'll mention. Remember, I said the other day that, that in talking about Lucifer's rebellion in heaven, Ellen White, more than any other single tactical effort that he used, talked about how he would plant a doubt and then co- you know, go around and come back later, and he would call that doubt out of their own mouths. Remember that? She talks about that time after time with Lucifer. In her writing of the equivalent kind of writing about Kellogg's apostasy, there's a different focal point. Maybe it was just that Kellogg used that one more. The one thing she warns most about Kellogg is talk, 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 late at night when people can't think straight. He'd keep them up for hours like that one meeting we just heard about from 5 to five to 11, right? He would commonly take, he'd get one or two people and he'd buttonhole them off someplace and he'd talk, talk, talk all night long or whatever, you know, until 2 in the morning or something like that, wear them down. Once upon a time, that happened to Willie White. And Ellen White was not around, but she saw it in vision and she was frantic. She said, you know, she would, I don't remember the exact wording, but it's like she would do anything to make sure that that never happened to Willie again. Um, it's, It's a form of hypnotism, is what it is. It's a form of mind control. Well, if we understand that, you remember that famous statement, Life Sketches 196, we have nothing to fear for the future, except, except what, class? Except we forget how God has led us in the past and his teaching in our past history. Sometimes, you know, we like more the leading stories than the teaching stories. <laughs> it's kind of funny how that works, you know. We, we love a good, oh, the Lord led me story, And we sometimes are a little less enthusiastic about, oh, the Lord corrected me stories. (laughs) We have nothing to fear for the future unless we forget that stuff. This is the big picture of that stuff. And it doesn't take any particular genius to see where we're headed. The alpha of apostasy is the... I mean, that's why she called it Alpha and Omega, right? There's a linkage. It's kind of like this is an acorn and that is an oak tree. There's some genetic similarities there. On the other side, we've still got a job to do. How are we going to do it? Hey, well, why don't we try following directions? <laughs> what a great concept! I love it. I'm a simple minded guy. <laughs> Let's do it the way Jesus asked us to do it. Maybe we can finish this thing out. We'll be looking at some of that stuff in our meeting tomorrow. I thank you for your attention. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, it's so nice to have a story where the good guys win. We pray that we would be prepared to emulate their faith, to copy their patience, to follow along in accepting correction, because truth is that Elder Daniels and even Elder Willie White, they they made their mistakes too, and they had to be corrected. Lord, help us to set our minds firmly, that we will follow, that we will have enough faith to believe that someone who is all-wise, all-powerful, and all-loving might actually tell us the best thing to do. Help us to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.